13 technology and venture capital leaders wrote a letter to the Defense Department last week asking for acquisition reform. Although the letter only covered a few recommendations, it referred back to a study done by the Atlantic Council on ways to reform defense acquisition, including that creaky planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talked about the report with the former head of the Defense Innovation Unit, Mike Brown. There are very specific recommendations that are made. For example, reprogramming authority with a historical perspective of how little reprogramming authority senior-level department officials have to adjust to urgent priorities and move into something that might be needed versus what was programmed in three years ago when the budget began. So that kind of brings up one of the things I wanted to ask you about. With the current mood of Congress right now, is less oversight even possible? Well, I think it's a very welcome debate as to whether today's way of handling the budget actually provides better oversight. There's three to 5,000 line items in the budget for defense only. Quite a change when the first budget was done in 1789. I looked this up. There were four line items for the federal government. I get government more complex now than it was in 1789, so I'm not arguing for four. But you could certainly argue that the Defense Department would have adequate oversight with a few hundred line items where the Congress would concentrate on the big ticket items and give some strategic guidance. Instead, they're finely grained appropriations. Imagine, again, three to 5,000 line items where DIU, a very small organization, had a couple by itself. And there's no flexibility to move from one program element, it's called, to another. Those are the line items. And then, as you know, and many of your listeners know, even within a line item, that's further specified by color of money. So procurement dollars are different from R&D dollars, different from operations dollars. So that actually puts a straitjacket on the department in terms of its flexibility. And when you think about what I've worked on for the last couple of years, which is innovation, which is happening at a rapid rate with new technology, there's no opportunity even for senior level department officials to say that is a very cool technology and I could use it in this application. Let's field it. Instead, that very senior level, whether it's a four star General Brown head of the Air Force, if he wants something, he says, put that in the budget. And that means in three years, we can start spending the first dollar. So that's completely inconsistent with a competition that we're facing with an adversary like China, which the defense strategy calls our facing adversary. And the rate at which technology moves for AI, cyber, autonomy, and so many of the newer technologies that the department is trying to feel. So I think the budgeting is, a, frankly, a constraint on our national security. And it's one where we've handed the advantage to the adversary just because we haven't adjusted our process from the Cold War. The process we use today was put in place by Secretary McNamara in the 1960s. So it's, it's geared for buying ships, tanks, and planes, not for software, and other things in the digital age. So we, we have to look at that and say, what kind of flexibility do we need that would actually attract new vendors to want to work with the Department of Defense and provide new capabilities? We're going to need to overhaul some of how we work with those vendors because in some of these spaces, the federal government isn't even uh, a large consumer relative to the rest of the market. In some, we are, if you think about buying rocket launch capacity, launch as a service, or satellite imagery, even autonomy, the government is a pretty big customer. But if you think about AI or cyber tools, not a significant part of the market. So we can't expect those 
innovative vendors who have something we need to completely turn themselves upside down so they can do business with the Department of Defense. Do you see a, a viable change in the near future? I do. I was very encouraged by the mark of the House Appropriations Committee. So Chairman Calvert from California has said, I'd like to see us implementing a hedge strategy. This is actually something that Admiral Lawrence Selby and I've written about. And it's saying a pretty common sense concept. We can't rely just on ships, tanks, and planes. We actually need to hedge those hardware long-term platforms, meaning we hold on to them for 20, 30, 40 years, with lots of newer, smaller things that are uh, resilient, that are sensors, that are autonomous. So you think about everything from better capability in space with different types of sensors, infrared, synthetic aperture radar that gives us real-time perspective of what's happening on the ground. You saw that used in Ukraine. You could see through clouds. You could see at night because we were using radar in addition to optical technology. Now there's infrared and radio frequency sensors being combined with that. So that makes it pretty tough for adversaries to hide or do something nefarious that we're not seeing, all the way to the effect you're seeing with small drones, cell phones being used as geolocators. So there's a whole set of commercially based technology the defense department didn't invent but sure as heck can use and these are the kind of things that would be in a head strategy so the chairman calvert is saying uh, he'd like to appropriate a billion dollars to get started on that head strategy and he asked diu to lead the effort along with the services so i was very encouraged by that in terms of technology that has more commercial market viability than than defense viability what incentives can be provided to them to go into contracts with the Defense Department? It's really moving at speed. Uh, so let's take AI as an example. That's being developed all around us at a very rapid rate. The Defense Department is not going to be the biggest consumer of AI, nor is it going to be the developer of AI. If we're able to just, with less red tape, quickly provide dollars, money from contracts to those suppliers, we'll attract them. I think Ukraine has changed how people think about supporting the Defense Department. We saw a tremendous uh, number of suppliers who were interested in working with the Defense Department even before Ukraine at the Defense Innovation Unit. Every time we would post a problem and say, who's got something that could solve that? On average, we saw 45 companies for each problem we posted. So the, the companies and the technologies are out there. Then, then we'd have to go through a process to test and down-select to who are the vendors we want to work with. Not everything someone proposes is something that's going to work. But if you can show that within a short period of time, you could actually start to provide those companies with contract dollars, and we have a vehicle to do that. It's authority Congress gave us called Other Transaction Authority. That allows you to do a competition. We're able to test you know, a software within six months going through taking it really through its paces to see if it performs in a military application. And then immediately upon the completion of that test, you can start ramping production with a production OT agreement, also provided in statute. Many folks don't do that. Many folks we work with at the Defense Innovation Unit would then go do another competition or try and use federal acquisition regulations. That's allowed, but not required. And that takes a lot more time. So you could envision a process where you do a prototyping, then go to a production OT, and within months, you could be providing contract dollars to that vendor. That's a very different scenario than telling that vendor, please wait, in three years, we'll program the next dollar in the defense budget, 
and provide that. So that, that's where the flexibility comes into play. We need a little bit of help from Congress on the flexibility part, but as long as the DOD component has the dollars allocated, the authorities are there to start spending it faster and scaling up new capability. Mike Brown, a former head of the Defense Innovation Unit and partner at the venture capital firm Shield, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, 
How has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? 
He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.